Redundancy Radio is a series of podcasts by me, Liv Siddle, in which I talk to people about their jobs because I haven't got one. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Redundancy Radio and Happy New Year. Unless of course you're listening to this later in the year, in which case hello from the past. I'm back with another episode after everyone was really nice about the first one. Once again, I'm here alone in my house. Um, just went to Lidl. I was kind of considering um, recording the entire intro in Lidl so I could take you through all the bargains that I always go for, but I couldn't do it because uh, I'm too embarrassed. Uh, but if you do want to know about the bargains in Lidl that I tend to go for, then just just drop me an email because I've got loads of tips. Um, or if you just want to chat about Lidl in general, I'm pretty open to that as well because it is a big part of my life. Um, so yeah, Lidl is kind of like the highlight of my day at the moment. And I kind of always say to myself, tomorrow I'll have a sort of me day. I'll go and spend the afternoon in a in foils bookshop or, or like a museum or something. But I never do it because I can't really enjoy doing anything at the moment like that when I feel like I should be spending my time looking for jobs or at least emailing people about doing work for them. Leisure time doesn't really feel like leisure time. At the moment, life feels like I've got an essay to hand in. But I haven't started the essay and I don't know what it's meant to be about. I just know I should be working on it, if that makes any sense. feels like I've got kind of like stuff to be doing, but literally no idea what that stuff is. So, yeah, good that I'm spending my time making this podcast, which is obviously raking in the cash. The interview that I've got today is me talking to a person who does a job kind of like what I do anyway. He's an interviewer. Um, It's the very wonderful Paul Gorman. I don't know if you've heard of him, but Paul is an exceptional writer and an interviewer. And for the last 30 years, he's contributed to some of the best magazines and newspapers um, ever. And he's written books on visual culture. And he's just this kind of really well-dressed encyclopedia of music and film and pop culture and politics and everything like that. And he's just made this incredible book called The Story of the Face, um, which has got quite a lot of press. And it's like a massive compendium about um, the, the Face magazine, which is just so amazing. And... Yeah, so we didn't really talk very much. We didn't talk loads about the face, but we kind of just talked about how Paul got where he is today and the secrets to good journalism, uh, how to interview people, and also the time that he interviewed the Spice Girls. He was actually one of the first people to ever interview the Spice Girls, so that's very exciting. Uh, And he's a great guy, and I learned quite a lot from this chat, so I hope you will as well. to get to land your first job? Well, my first job was actually plucking turkeys in a butcher's shop. Um, <laughs> my mother got me the job because, you know, she just wanted me to get out of the house and earn some money. Uh, but I think my first real job was working in a photo library in, which had been set up by a school friend's mother in uh, the West End in Cleveland Street. And then cut to a couple of years later when I'd left home and I'd left school and I was... Um, trying to persuade my girlfriend, who was a year younger than me, to leave home and leave school as well. And her parents kind of got wind of it, and they knew that, you know, this was an extremely stupid thing to have done. You know, she was on a track to go to, as she did, she went to university. And her father had a, what in those days was an unusual thing, a marketing company in Chalk Farm in Camden Town. And um, I remember he took me aside and said, what do you want to do? So I said, um, 
I don't know really. You know, I was quite happy being on the dole and you know going to gigs and you know I was cleaning houses uh, regularly for uh, for a living. I was never been so rich actually, and um, I was living in Camberwell and joined the dole in Peckham, in fact. Um, and he said, "Well, what can you do?" Which I thought was, which I now think is a very interesting question. And I said, "Oh, I can write," and it kind of popped out of my mouth, and I didn't really know that. But I suppose I had kind of from the William books and the P.G. Woodhouse books and from my older siblings, I had kind of gained a knowledge of writing uh, that was beyond any kind of academic application. And within three or four weeks, he got me an interview for uh, an editorial assistant at um, International Thompson Business Publishing, which then owned The Times and had various trade papers. And I was assigned to... Uh, Meat Trades Journal, which was the butcher's paper. From your turkey experience? Uh, yeah, well, that, that <laughs> came in well, you know, that was useful in, in swinging the gig. I didn't really want the gig, you know. I was perfectly happy cleaning, um, cleaning flats in the West End and just lazing around. And um, That's uh, quite a strange start to your career, to be writing about meat. And also um, cleaning flats, because I, I think that's probably one of the most fascinating jobs to clean flats because yeah. you just see you must have seen such strange things like was it interesting doing that I remember oh, being a chambermaid and I, I found it quite interesting yeah but. no it was amazing and of course I was naturally quite inquisitive and so I was always <laughs> kind of rooting through stuff while they were around I was cleaning offices in the evening and then flats originally at the weekend um, in, you know from extra some extraordinary people this was in the West End in Seymour Place which is a large mansion block just off the Edgware Road, I cleaned the flat of this woman who was a kept woman. She literally was a kept woman. Uh, her boyfriend, her sugar daddy, uh, lived uh, in Monte Carlo and he, she, he just maintained her there and would visit once a week, not when I was around. Wow. And I remember she had a room, a room which was just full of uh, cases of Remy Martin brandy. Um, <laughs> And, I, you know, I cleaned flats for just really strange and interesting people. The, the, the like of which you don't really find, I don't think, very much anymore. They're kind of on the cusp of being quite posh, but also quite crazy. I'm only 28 and I've been interviewing bands for a few years, which I, which I enjoy. And I still get a kick out of it because, you know, I, I like bands and I want to interview bands. But was, is there a point where that becomes boring because you're like, this isn't actually giving me much and and after you've interviewed so many sort of pop stars or whatever does that did you have a point where you were like actually what am I doing well, yeah I mean there were a lot I worked at Music Week as a contributing editor for five six years and so I got a lot of those and there were some who are actually you know they're quite boring people aren't they musicians sometimes like everyone else you mm -hmm. know they're actually quite boring and I don't really want to know about chord changes or song structures maybe I do a bit but once you've heard it a few times, I think that's good though, because again, I am by nature a skeptic, but also by training a skeptic. And so if you have that distance, that kind of, not boredom with it, but the expectations that go with it, means that you've got to find something to write about without slagging them off, really. You yeah. Know, unless they're complete arseholes and then go for it, you know. Um, but I was there to do a job, it's a trade paper, it's the business kind of journalism that I absolutely love and so I could deliver on that even when I was quite bored. It's very different if you're sort of getting to know Richard Hell and interviewing him about a particular thing 
this is somebody I really admire who's really, I think, endlessly interesting. You know, you can have several conversations and interviews with him and still be finding out more. Mm. Same with Iggy Pop, say. Um, there are those people around. And, you know, there are some young musicians, younger musicians that I'm really fascinated in. What do you want from interviewing someone? Yeah, what, what do you want? You want to you be interested and excited. You want that encounter that's going to make you go away and go, wow, that's, that's really good, or bad, or mad, or, you know. You want, you want some kind of interaction which sparks you into hopefully delivering a decent piece rather than a de rigueur, yeah. you know, doctrinaire kind of piece. Are there any interviews that stick out in your mind as ones that you've left and just been like, oh my God? Uh, the Spice Girls one. It was their first ever interview. I was going to ask about that, yeah. but I thought it's, I thought you'd get asked about that all the time. <laughs> uh, occasionally I do, but I quite like talking about it because it was really part... Of, it shows how much of the pop process they were. Yeah. And yet they kind of... They activated it in a way that they weren't just dummies. There's something about the Spice Girls which was quite anarchic, but quite stage school... And I really quite liked it. Could you tell that at the time? Because I think now, retrospectively, we can tell, but... I mean, it is, you know, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but I was working with people who were talking about the Manic Street Preachers as though they were going to save music. It was like, for God's sake, I can't bear this stuff. (laughs) Um, Whereas, and I didn't do it to be a contrarian, but I came back and just wrote this piece. uh, And, you know, it does start, you know, People with it probably was part of that. People with guitars had better watch out, you know. Yeah. Here, here are five women who are going to change everything, and of course they did. They I don't did. think it took a great amount of insight to do that, but it was something that was evident from the encounter. And of course, my tape broke down in the interview. Can Can you just walk me through the day that you interviewed the Spice Girls? Go yeah. on, just well, tell me everything. Well, I was going to Glasgow that evening to stay with some friends. I went to the place in Harrow Road, Virgin, there. It was organised by the press office and the MD, Ashley, um, at the time. And they wanted to put them in front of a a trade journalist. So it would be, they could kind of test them out as well and see how they went. Mm. This was six weeks ahead of the release of Wannabe. So they wanted to use Music Week to tell the trade, start ordering this record. But I wasn't told, and I was never told in those encounters, you've got to be nice about them, you've got to flog it. It's kind of go in and find out what they're like and come back with what you get. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they were bought in and they were just really, really great. And I remember I smoked at the time. I, you know, I always used to kind of use little tropes or mannerisms or something just to get people going. So I always had some gum, had some, some fags, and I always used to wear something slightly... Dandyish. So I had a striped shirt on uh, with striped cufflinks, um, which Posh Spice noticed. <laughs> and while these other ones were going on, she was sitting next to me. I don't think she smoked ever, but I remember her taking some gum. But she said, your, your cufflinks match your shirt. <laughs> I was like, yeah, they do. <laughs> but it was nice. It was kind of nice. And then Jerry was kind of crazy and... Um, the one I said, you know, what are the names of your accountants and lawyers? And Sporty Spice knew them immediately. I think they would have all got on it eventually, but she was in there first. She knew them immediately. Wow. So they were very businesslike as well as being fun. I had a pair of green Y fronts that I got from Burrow, oh, lime green ones, and I told them and they made me show them. 
so you do those kind of things if yeah. you know you're going to be in that encounter which could be fun or or if it's actually going to fall flat and they're just a bunch of stage stalls, school girls then yeah. you know or boys you know you're not going to do that but you kind of at that time I wanted to kind of set up things because then it kept me interested but it must also be hard to interview five people at once yeah great yeah how how do you make sure that you're sort of getting a handle on all of them at the same time you don't really with those situations you just let them go and uh, make the loudest win and they were all loud and yeah. they sang it's really embarrassing I mean you must have been in this situation where somebody goes do you want to hear on Lace's records <laughs> <laughs> and you have to sit there going oh my god yeah and sort of going, no this, this, oh no it's really good yeah, but that was funny because they didn't really give a shit what I said. I think they just wanted to embarrass me. What, what did they sing? One of their I songs? They, yeah, they did the intro to Wannabe a cappella, or they did a section of it. Oh my God, that's amazing. It was really good fun. <laughs> uh, but then about halfway through, I was using one of the old clunky you know, cassette recorders, and again, it was sporty. It went, mate, your tape's not working. And I went, no, 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 it's fine. I just bullshitted it, and it had stopped about halfway through. But I was used to that. I'd been, I didn't, you probably didn't use that technology, which was very, very, you know, it was very problematic. So I made up interviews all the time. So you'd have like little tiny tapes in a little tape thing? Is no, that it was a big one. It was, was a big, big one. one. You know, the big cassettes. It was one of those. It was before I got a dictaphone. So you'd make notes and then just kind of, the quotes, you just kind of vaguely... I'd go through the tape and, mm. oh, if I'd make it up. Yeah. I had to make it up on a couple of occasions. One was Shane McGowan, because I couldn't mm-hmm. understand a word he was saying, <laughs> literally. But he invited me over to his place to watch Top of the Pops. I got that much out of it. And it was Thursday night and I was going out for dinner. I went, no, it's right. You're right, mate. I wish I'd gone. I cannot believe. Yeah. Wow. Well, Ronnie Woods invited me over to Ireland on a Friday night. <laughs> he said, come over, we're having a party. Get a flight now. I was living in Maida Vale, I could have gone to Heathrow. Could have Why didn't you go? I don't know, I just thought, well, I've got what I need now. It's for one of yeah. my books. Also, don't get too close, that's the thing, mm. my thing. Um, don't get too clean close, as George O'Dowd used to say. I was reading an interview yesterday in, what's it called, Big Issue, with Benny Anderson from ABBA. And it was, the feature was called A Letter to My Younger Self. And he said something along the lines of, if you just keep keep plodding along and keep making things, eventually good things will come to you. Now, do you agree with that? Yeah, because I was forced to do that, actually. So I realised that... And also I had some kind of application to it. I wouldn't have lasted as a trainee journalist unless it was kind of in me, Mm. you know. Uh, And I was very lucky enough to work with people who recognised that as well and nurtured it. Uh, But for a very long time, I don't think I was... um, I wasn't writing about the things I wanted to. I wasn't writing about the things that I was interested in. But I'm really, really glad that I didn't. And I'm really glad that um, I wasn't, you know, successful mm. uh, in those terms. But, you know, I had a good wage. I had a company car. I had an expense account. Cool. You know, these were all, these were all <laughs> things which kept me fed in other ways. Mm. But economically, I had nothing to fall back on. I didn't have, you know the bank of mum and dad or anything else. I just had that business. And so when I went freelance, which is actually 25 years ago wow. this year, really every day I had to get up and start again, you know. So it, without that experience, I couldn't have done it. So Benny's quite right, hmm. even though he looks like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> um, you know, he's quite right. Yeah. Keep at it. Yeah. 
I think that's the best way, isn't it? It is. It is. You know, because uh, if, you, if you're onto something, stick at it, even though the circumstances can seem quite glamorous and you're not getting the kudos. Mm. That doesn't really matter yeah. at that point. How do you prepare for an interview? Or, or has that process changed over time? It's, it's changed over time. I don't really, I'm not conscious of preparing now. I mean, obviously I read up and I don't often interview people I don't know much about. Though I do write obituaries mm. quite a bit for the national papers. And um, so I'll interview, it's funny, yeah, it goes back to that thing maybe. Um, but I, I love the form because it has its discipline and it's, the paper I write for is anonymous. Mm-hmm. I don't like obituaries where it's all about that, but the person who's writing it, going back to my training, it yeah. should be objective and analytical and fair and all of those things. Um, but, um, yeah, I suppose I do interview lots of people I don't know about, but I, um, I just prepare as much as possible and then let the conversation go. When you walk into a room to interview someone, um, do you feel like you're quite um, malleable in how you can adapt your your personality and your body language and your your attitude towards the interview depending on the situation can you just kind of bend to to fit what you need to get if that makes sense yeah, I know I know what you mean I don't think so I think you have to hold the line you have to be not in control but you're steering the conversation and this happens a lot with big-headed people as well and there's a lot of big-headed people around not least me is that they want to dictate the conversation and actually you're the interviewer you should be in control of it and there's various wiles and guiles and whatever the words are stratagems <laughs> that you can use you know including flattery mm. including actually being quite cold sometimes including making a mistake and flubbing it that really puts people at their ease have you ever done that yeah loads of times loads what you of kind times. of purposefully yeah. sort of fuck up and then or I let myself just do something like that where you know go, oh sorry about that and I, I find that that really helps p- put people at their ease um, I, th- I think the other thing is listening rather than contributing mm. but there again don't let people drone on you're there for a reason yeah and they've got to true. know it as well I used to have an editor um, who was something of a mentor actually and I think those people are really important but he he went to, to like proper journalism school, which I didn't do. And so he used to teach me like what he learned there, which is very valuable information that I'll never forget. But he was always of the idea that when you're writing a profile or, or, or interviewing or anything, you have to basically pretend that, or just completely take yourself out of it. So as you say about the obituaries, taking your name off it, you, you, you're completely anonymous. How do you feel about that? Do you think because it's quite hard sometimes to get across a style when you're trying to be completely as if you don't exist. Yeah. I'm not explaining that very well, I don't know. Doing that is actually quite difficult. But if you can do it, it really makes the difference because I notice a lot when I'm interviewed and or people write about my work, they talk about themselves a lot. And the Guardian review, which was faintly damning, uh, of the Facebook, I don't mind, it's up to him, he can, he can say what he likes about the book. You know, the idea is you publish a book, mm-hmm. but you publish anything actually. Everything is fair game after that, as far as I'm concerned. I've got quite a thick skin when it comes to that sort of thing. But he made mistakes which I would, I would never make because of my training, you know, which is that he starts talking, he started talking about when he first read the magazine. Yeah. And immediately it becomes about him and his experience. And there's a lot of that in journalism that's encouraged now. Have you ever been made redundant? Yeah. When? 
1985, I worked on a startup, an offshoot of Farmers Weekly called Crops Weekly. <laughs> I know nothing about farming. And it lasted nine months. And I'd always been a union member. Yeah. Uh, I was on several strikes in the early 80s. It was a very strike, you know, hit time, what, with what Murdoch was up to. And um, I was a strong NEJ member and they closed it and the NEJ had inserted a clause in the, if any magazine launched, closed within a year, you got extra redundancy. Mm. So I got £10,000 then which uh, facilitated me buying my first flat, which wow. again, you know, I didn't have any savings, I had nothing to go on, you know, I was doing things like spending all my money in Johnson's if I won 500 quid, you know, <laughs> it was all going down the drain or down the pub. Um, and um, it was a really great experience, you know, a lot of people talk about being made redundant as, you know, you know, it's kind of a rejection, isn't it? But I felt it was kind of opened up my, uh, opened up my, uh, landscape a bit that's good to know it's a good way of looking at it it's probably different for everyone it is yeah I mean uh, I think it's probably very tough for you these are different circumstances and you didn't get a decent payoff either I imagine uh, I got two weeks pay it wasn't quite ten grand I think it was about nine and a half grand <laughs> right. yeah exactly it's close to it but um I think the you know the opportunities afforded by in the digital age for young creative people are really you know the thing that you guys have to cling on to mm. because the jobs aren't there you know uh, and automation is coming and everything else that's happening but those opportunities are, are really really amazing I think and you know sort of beyond my ken a lot of them but um, yeah keep on plodding on as Benny says excellent listening to this episode of Redundancy Radio big thanks to Kyle Platts for the logo Joff Owen for the morale boost John Webb for checking it doesn't sound too shit and to Wesley Gonzalez for the wonderful jingles see you next time <laughs>